My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hi, and welcome to the KingCast, a podcast that digs deep into both the written and cinematic worlds created by Stephen King. I'm Eric Vespi, and this is my co-host, Scott Wampler. Hello. And today we're joined by Michael Doherty, who you will know as the writer-director of Trick or Treat, Krampus, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yes. Do you like that? It just sounds yeah, really but... professional, doesn't it? Oh, no, I was just responding to a trick-or-treat. Oh, mentioned. the trick-or-treat. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I, I thought you were... And the other ones, Mike. I'm sorry. I like the other no, ones. No, no, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, all right. No, it's all good. Uh, but it also turns out Mike, who you just voice you just heard, is a big Stephen King nerd, just like us. And we're going to take a deep dive into King's Cycle of the Werewolf and its 1985 movie adaptation, Silver Bullet. So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. So first things first... Uh, what's your King origin story? Everybody has one. Like, what? When did you get into Stephen King? Like, what hooked you? Uh, I mean, I grew up in the '80s, so I feel like I was uh, first generation Stephen King. And uh, my distinct memory was as a kid. I think I must have been like five or six years old, and getting dumped off at the babysitter's place, and uh, she had a shelf full of Stephen King books and the covers alone and the titles were really captivating. And the first one I plucked off the shelf and kept me occupied, which I think was ultimately her goal, uh, was Carrie. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it just pulled me in. Um, I mean, all the books did just cause they, they felt like something that could happen in your small town. Like I grew up in a small town in Ohio and that was the allure for me was that they they all felt like stories that could happen next door. I have a question. What caused you to bring that one down off the shelf before the other ones? Was it the cover? It was the cover because if, if I remember correctly, it was actually the, the paperback they put out to help promote the film. Mm-hmm. So it was a very graphic image of Sissy Spacek covered in blood. <laughs> oh, that'll do it. Yeah. 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 Um, but it was, you know, it was at the height when I was sort of reaching out and trying to find different kinds of horror and sci-fi because I was up until then I was mostly into Star Wars and superheroes and Godzilla and the Twilight Zone. And so the Stephen King story sort of felt like the next logical step because they helped, you know, they pushed the envelope a little bit more into the R territory. For sure. Yeah, well, and as as nutty as they get, like you're right, every single one of them is grounded. He's got such a a talent for creating characters you recognize. And, and I know that that's what grabbed me as a kid, like over, over the Dean Kuntz's of the world, you know, that's, I actually cared about people. They could be doing anything. Um, And Mm -hmm. I remember very vividly reading the stand and having that feeling like this, I love the post-apocalyptic nature and the kind of wish fulfillment of like, what could you do if suddenly you can just walk into any bank and grab as much money as you want or pick whatever you want off the shelf. Like all that was fun, but it was because I cared so much about the characters that like I could invest a thousand pages of time and, you know, and be really, you know, happy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the early into the mid eighties was such a sort of the first Renaissance uh, for his stories, because you also had the first wave of film adaptations. Yeah. And I remember Carrie was sort of the gateway drug, because then the babysitter tells me, oh, there's a movie based off that book. And then Salem's Lot, the same thing. And like, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting uh, either a new Stephen King novel getting pumped out uh, or one of the movie adaptations, you know, and then, and then finding out about Creepshow, you know, and mm. teaming up with George Romero. And so it was just... Everywhere you looked, you could find uh, a new story to tear into. And that's what happened as he sort of became uh, sort of foundational horror for me growing up. Well, And that's really interesting. And I think one of the reasons why we were drawn uh, to do a podcast that kind of examined both his written word and the cinematic adaptations of that, because that's been uh, his success from day one. You know, his his first uh, published book, uh, Carrie was turned into a movie right away. That was a huge hit. And he's been very vocal about if 
De Palma had screwed up that movie that he wouldn't have had the career that he had that that instantly put him like in the majors and like so he's been he writes cinematically you can't help but picture what you're reading in your mind's eye mm-hmm. like he's you know it's it's uh, the marriage of of his written work and the movies made out of them are like so entwined in a way that a lot of authors that that doesn't really work maybe Crichton can you know can claim some credit you know there too but for most authors they're really successful in one realm or, or the other like they're either okay books like Peter Benchley like I'm the biggest Jaws nerd in the world you know but you look at at that book and it's nothing compared to the movie the movie is you know 20 times better than that book and well yeah I think that's the beauty of a lot of his stuff is with King stuff is that the the book the novels and the films tend to work together really well. Yeah. You know, so it's like if you saw a lot of times I would see the movie first. Um, Salem's Lot being a really great example. I watched that on TV before going back and reading the novel. And it was sort of fun to sort of reverse engineer the movies uh, and then use the books to sort of fill in the and fill in the blanks. Mm. And I think I think part of his appeal is that it's 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 elevated horror and that it's always very elegant. Uh, very character-driven, with surprising emotion, but then there's a simplicity to the elegance. Mm. You know? It's like a really great home-cooked meal, um, and that it's 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 uh, it always uh, it even appeals to like kids. And I think that was the thing for me is that I was again I was I think I started tearing into his books as early as six or seven, and then mm-hmm. um, all through grade school. I would find a way to convince my teachers to let me do a book report on a Stephen King novel, <laughs> you know. And we're talking we're talking about a Catholic school, like really <laughs> stuff. So um, you're you were a very persuasive child, is what this sounds like. Because I read apparently I read uh, uh, King starting in sixth grade myself, and my my first book was Cujo, but like I hid that. Like I remember <laughs> I have very vivid memories of hiding my paperback, my well worn paperback of Cujo with the snarling dog snout you know, on the cover, uh, in my pencil case, like, you know, oh, wow. it, it was the perfect size to, to hold it. You know, I don't know if that was just me being embarrassed about it or if, if like I legit would have gotten in trouble, you know, but I definitely, I, it definitely felt to me like I got, I got in trouble for reading King yeah. too early. And also I was, I was making all of my decisions with King based on like after, I think my grandmother read eyes of the dragon to me when I was a kid mm-hmm. and that was, that was the end of it. You know, I was in from that point on. And then I got in trouble for reading one of his books in school. And uh, I think it was The Shining. And I think I was, I think this is like elementary school. You know, I was reading, I was reading very young and I was also a morbid kid and I'm still a morbid person. So I was always attracted to horror. Um, But uh, they contacted my parents about it. My parents were kind of like, well... You know, he's reading, you know, yeah. and, and so they were they were fine with it. But most of my decisions were based on the, you know, in terms of what I read, were based on the the cover art of the books. I remember Misery, the hardcover of Misery has a particularly striking cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, to loop back around to something you said a minute ago about the universality of King. That's not a word, but we're going to go with it. Um, I think he's sort of the Bruce Springsteen of American horror. <laughs> That's where perfect. Yeah, because it's there's it's shot through with all this Americana, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his his stories are always set in little towns. They always always have like adorable names, you know, a, a sewing shop called you so and so that right. sort of thing. You know, that's that's fucking, ap- you know, cherry pie and ice cream and fireworks on the 4th of July. That's that's pure king. Um, so he's. That's what he is. He's sort of a working class voice for yeah. uh, for horror in America. Um, yeah, I'd like, descri- I'd like to say that he he's uh, Norman Rockwell meets Norman Bates. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. I agree. People listening might not know exactly how we're we're approaching people uh, to guest on here, and so far our approach is not to say, "Hey, we want to cover X title." You know, you do The Shining, you do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Pet Cemetery. you do it. We're right. asking people what what uh, story they want to focus on. And yours, your instinct whenever I reached out to you was Cycle of the Werewolf. Why, why was that? Uh, it's funny because I think it's the first time 
I can recall seeing a Stephen King story visualized hmm. um, with Bernie Wrightson's illustrations. Um, Cause I think the, the book was originally published in 83. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would have been God, nine years old by then. And uh, so I had, you know, seen a few of the films and read some of the books, but I remember one of my best friends handing me cycle the werewolf and saying, here's the new one. Have you seen it? And just flipping through the book and being really caught off guard by these vivid, colorful, gory illustrations of, you know, various werewolf attacks and victims. And those images, I mean, Bernie Wrightson's a master, you know, the illustrations just burn themselves into my memory. Um, and also just the idea that Stephen King was tackling something as classic as a werewolf story and putting his spin on it uh, was really attractive in the same way that, you know, uh, Salem's Lot was sort of his iconic vampire story. Um, and I think also because the protagonist was a 12 year old boy, mm-hmm. you know, that it was uh, sort of this boy who cried wolf story. Um, and Literally. that became... <laughs> yeah. And by the way, that became one of the stories, one of the books that I did a book report on for school. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, like I, it, it was, again, it was a Catholic school, but either the teachers completely were, were fans of Stephen King or they were just happy that the kids were reading. And I just fell in love with it to the point where I used to try and draw some of the panels on my own, mm. you know? Um, and also I think, um, you know, again, I grew up in a small town in Ohio and it just, and I was becoming aware that, you know, my small town wasn't as idyllic and perfect as I thought it was. You know, my dad was a cop, so he would come home and tell me about various crimes that they were investigating um, or just sort of overhear it on the news or whatever. And that's sort of what the story is about. You know, it's what a lot of his stories are about, you know, that that picturesque Americana that we all subscribe and believe to isn't always what it's cracked up to be. Um, and it sounds like he, one of your one of the preachers at, or the priests at your school probably had an eye patch, so <laughs> no. you can relate to it. No, in the in the book, it's interesting because in the book it was a reverend. That's right. And, yeah. and then in the his initial screenplay for Silver Bullet, he changed it to a Catholic priest. Mm. But then in the movie, they changed it back to a reverend. So I've always been curious yeah. about that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I went to a Catholic school, so I was constantly being indoctrinated by all that dogma. And so to find out in the story that the, that the villain, the perpetrator of all these crimes was the local holy man, that just added an extra morbid layer to it that really, you know, sealed the deal and made me fall in love with it. No. Yeah. I mean, that, that writes an art really... Uh, was striking too. That's my memory of it when I mm-hmm. read it. I, I can't remember. I probably saw the movie before I read the book because um, I, I would have started reading King in the late 80s, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and But I was also a cable kid. So, and Silver Bullet was on 24-7 on, on cable. Oh, wow. uh, but, but, I do, but I do remember when I got into my king kick because I, I was hooked so quickly that I decided before middle school that I was going to read every single book that King ever wrote. Mm-hmm. And at that point it was a huge task of like 30 books. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, task grew uh, substantially, but yeah, I do remember, you know, getting it and kind of having the same feeling I got when I got uh, the dark tower where there is something of seeing the full color illustrations as you're going through yeah. That, that really hits you in a, in a different way um, than just reading it cold. Yeah, and yeah. especially if you're a kid. If you're a kid and you flip open a book and there's pictures, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, that's fucking catnip. You're in. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, there's that, and there's that picture. Uh, one of the rights and illustrations is uh, the, can the I, werewolf. Can I, can I guess which one it is? Okay, go. Is it the werewolf tearing off the police? Yes! yes! I knew it! I knew it! You, I knew like, it. you can it's feel the, the you can feel the weight yep. of the paw, you yep. know, and and it's it's not like it's almost lazy. It's just like pulling his face mm-hmm. off. It's not yeah. ripping it off. You but know, also and, the werewolf also has this amazing expression of just contempt and anger. And totally doing it. Yeah. That that werewolf doesn't like cops. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough you know yeah but uh yeah that um that one that one really stuck with me 
I think there's one in there of the uh, the slaughtered hogs. It's yeah. also uh, yeah. really fucking gnarly, but um, but yeah, that that sticks with you. I was the same way. Like uh, Eyes of the Dragon had illustrations. The first Gunslinger has illustrations. Um, any any those ones took precedence uh, in my mind as a kid uh, because. But I, I almost- yeah, it almost feels like it was intentional. What I love about those books, uh, the illustrated ones, is that, like you said, they're sort of like catnip. They're sort of like a gateway drug. So that if you were a kid and you heard about your parents reading Stephen King novels, here's the sort of junior edition. <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? Like, and like also, and well, Cycle of the Werewolf started off as a, a calendar, yeah. right? You can probably speak to that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, I'd known, I'd heard that for a long time, but I actually did some research. Yeah. Into like exactly what the origins were, and and it's pretty nuts because King only agreed to do this because he he was approached at a a, a convention, World Fantasy Convention in uh, Providence in 1979, and he was both drunk. And uh, what? N- believe it or not, he was drunk, and he was also feeling an imposter syndrome uh, pretty strongly because this would have been right after uh, Salem's Lot, and, mm-hmm. and probably I think '79 would have been The Shining as well, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so he he's writing this huge success, and he's going to this convention um, where he's like king shit at the convention, and uh, all these people that he idolized are barely able to afford bus fare to get there. And so he was feeling, you know, like he didn't deserve it. He was drunk. And then he was approached by um, a, a small publisher named Christopher Zavisa, um, who represented Bernie Wrightson. And they were planning on doing a horror calendar with Bernie Wrightson art. And they were, mm-hmm. the initial idea was, hey, you know, <clears throat> why don't we get Stephen King to write 500 words for each month? Uh, and, you know, each month will be a different kill and, you know, illustrating the, you know, a, a werewolf attacking every full moon for a, for a year. And uh, he agreed to do that, but uh, then very quickly fell out of love with it because, you know, that's not his style of, uh, of writing. Like, and if you read the book now, it, it's pretty crazy because he doesn't even introduce the main character till halfway through mm-hmm. uh, uh, Marty Kozla. It, uh, the kid in the wheelchair isn't mm-hmm. he's mentioned briefly in one of like hearing the werewolf howl in like one of the early months, right. but he doesn't actually show up as a character till June or July, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it's, it's, and, most, it's mostly vignettes. Yeah. But the, if you actually read it now, you, you still see that structure where the very first few months, they're like five to 800 words each chapter. Mm-hmm. And then he gets to the kid in the wheelchair and suddenly it turns in an, into a novella. You know, and right. that, that's yeah. where he he said that he uh, fell back in love with with doing it, and the only reason he finished it was because he grabbed onto this kid uh, character, and he was like, "This is it. This is our the actual through line, and I can write it the way, you know, I want to write it." And he uh, uh, the story goes as he went back to the publisher saying, "Sorry, your calendar idea is not going to work, uh, but you know, I can give you a, a small." He called it a novelette. He's like, I can give you a novel. That's, a, that's how it's credited in the movie. Too, oh, really? In the credits, well, there you yeah. Go. Uh, but what was really funny about that is, like, apparently he he suspects the publisher always wanted to publish a King book and not a, a calendar with Stephen King words in it. Yeah. So he's like, he says now that he's pretty sure that, like, they were kind of hoping he would go in that direction anyway. But it's really crazy. You can still see the remnants of that original idea when you go back and read it now and how. Yeah. You know, January, February, March, they're all these tiny, like isolated, just, you know, kill moments that have almost none of the character that you associate with King. I love yeah. the idea that someone might combat imposter syndrome by doing a calendar. Yeah. <laughs> There's something very funny about that. Yeah. That's very King. Yeah, I think that's part of the appeal, uh, you know, for me as a kid was that it's, it's almost an anthology, going back to what we were talking about before. Yeah. You know, it's every month is a short story with one of these locals and the through line is, you know, the full moon and the werewolf. And like you said, you don't really meet the main character until much later. Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of, again, it's sort of like junior edition King. It's like, you know, my nephew's not quite ready for it, but when he hits 10, it'll definitely be one of the books that I give to him with scary stories to tell in the dark. Oh, nice. um, you know, and then, you know, the movie came on uh, two years after the book came out. And so it sort of felt like a natural evolution. I mean, if you go back and watch the film, you know, he's definitely, because he also wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they definitely made more of an effort to make Marty and his sister the main characters uh, versus sort of following the more sort of vignette or anthology structure of, of the book. Oh, I got some notes on the movie. Let me give Uh-oh. you my notes. All right. Silver Bullet, directed by Dan Atias, uh, which is a name that I am not familiar with. No. Uh, am I saying that correctly? I'm sure. Oh, you look like you were going to say something. Nope. Like maybe it's Adius. I don't know. Uh, Dan Atias, who this was his first feature film, and then he went on to direct, uh, has a storied career in television. This guy directed episodes of The Soprano. Like, you you name a show, and he probably worked on it at some point. In fact, he directed some of the best episodes of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, including Flowers for Charlie, which blew my fucking mind when I, when I read that. But um, this was, uh, like a few other King Adaptions in the mid-'80s, uh, a production of uh, Dino De Laurentiis, mm-hmm. uh, an absolute lunatic who was running a certain corner of Hollywood uh, through the through the mid 80s, uh, eventually worked with King on Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, and he kind of had the corner marketed on King for for a hot second. Like, what wasn't he also behind? I think like, he wanted to own King a little bit. I think stuff. he wanted to keep him, you know, in his little corner yeah. for as much as possible. Yeah, because Cat's he, Eye was Dino De Laurentiis too. Yeah, for it? sure. Yeah. yeah, and so was uh, Firestarter. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think he saw the. You know, when I think of Dino, I think of a guy like Monopoly guy with like dollar signs in his eyes <laughs> like that's Dino. And I think that that's what he saw with with King and, and the sales that his books were putting up. And then King's willing to do fucking screenplay. So why not? You know, so so this movie comes out in 1985. According to Wikipedia, it made and I'm quoting here 12 million or five point four million dollars. We may never know. Uh, didn't do terribly well with with critics on release. Uh, Roger Ebert liked it and gave it three out of four stars. Mm-hmm. Because he thought it was a comedy. He, yeah, he thought it was a, he thought it was like a satire of, of, uh, of King's stuff, which is something I want to loop back around to later. It's got a 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the internet will tell you that this is a, a, a cult classic sort of movie. I don't know if I agree with that. I have a feeling that the cult classic status is going to mostly be coming from people like me who, you know, it's the same reason why I love Monster Squad so much. You know, it was something that I've watched endlessly on cable. Uh, You know, and the same thing with Silver Bullet. And when you're a kid, you know, especially a little boy in here and you have a main character Mm -hmm. who's a little boy fighting a werewolf, it's real easy to put yourself into that well, scenario. see, I grew up in a rocket-powered wheelchair, and that's why I identified so strongly. I actually grew up as Uncle Red, which is really crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of love for this movie, nor do I have a lot of love for the book. I, I think it's middle-of-the-road king on, mm. both, on both counts. Um, but uh, I revisited the movie last night, and uh, my biggest takeaway from the whole thing um, up until the movie really gets going, yeah. is that everyone in Tarker's Mill is an asshole. <laughs> like, like almost everyone, even the ostensible hero hero of the story, is you know terrorizing his sister yeah. with a with a snake, with his dumbass friend in a tree, like right off the bat. And then you cut from that to uh, a guy like violently breaking up with a woman who who is pregnant with his mm-hmm. child, and then there's an abusive father, and it's so it's sort of the movie. The movie is the book, but it fleshes it out. And what's interesting to me is that what it fleshes out is this sort of Norman Rockwell town. And and pay attention to how few people of color there are in this movie, where where everyone everyone seems to be a dick. You know, there aren't a lot of likable characters, and I, I think that extends even to Corey Haim's character mm-hmm. and and his sister. Uh, it's just an ugly place. You know, so I'm choosing to interpret that in sort of the David Lynch sense of, you know, a festering an underbelly to, uh, you know, uh, what is otherwise a very normal town. But um, I push back a little bit uh, on that because I think that, like, they go out of their way to show that Marty's a burden for, for the sister. 
the sisters always kind of by going out of their way. Do you mean they say that out explicitly? Yeah, yeah, multiple times. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. they hit you on the head with it. But like, I I actually really do love the moment when he kind of comes into her room at night that night and and is trying to quietly leave money to for her her torn uh, leggings. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think that's a very sweet moment. in, in talking about Corey Haim, I actually, on my revisit here, I was really impressed on what he brings to the movie because I honestly sure. think this is one of the his best performances that he gave because this is before he be you know became the the heartthrob right so mm-hmm. this is before he kind of you know hit the the teen I got to be really cool license to drive years the, right. the two Corey years you know the Corey Haim and Corey Feldman team up years. well I was gonna say this is a Feldman household yeah you know this yeah. is not a Haim household so uh and you know. you know he's he's he was never the best actor but like he, this performance I think he actually I don't know he, he he brings the innocence and he brings the fear I honestly just think it's one of the best that I've I, I've seen of, of his of his stuff fair um, I won't argue that yeah. yeah, I mean, I, for me, the appeal of the film was obviously because it was an extension and adaptation of mm. the book. Um, I remember it was two things. It was the first movie I ever rented. Hmm. Because this was the beginning, because it came out on DVD, I think, in 86. Or sorry, not DVD. It came out on... Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Right, it, came out on, it came out on VHS and Beta, and I rented it in Beta. We were the only family in town that had a... a beta uh vcr and there was one video store renting it out and this is also pre-blockbuster and uh i had to beg my dad to let me rent it because it was rated r Mm. and uh so it became my first uh rental from the from the store and they also published uh the screenplay with the original novella as sort of a combo pack so to help promote the film. And so it became the first screenplay I ever read way back oh, in wow. 85. Yeah. So it was at the library and, you know, again, pre-internet. So screenplays weren't exactly floating around in Columbus, Ohio. And so it was the first time I under, got to understand what a screenplay was, you know, what it looked like, the structure. And, you know, happily it was a Stephen King screenplay. Um, so it was a lot of firsts for me. So I'm sure that's what helped make an impression on me, but it still goes back to the core concept of a werewolf terrorizing a small town. And to what mm-hmm. you said, Scott, about how everyone in this town is sort of unlikable. I would say that there's sort of, I, I get what you're saying there, but I, I would also say it's, there's a lot of flawed people. And that's part of the journey of Marty and his sister is they do start out at each other's throats. There is a lot of family tension going on between Marty, his sister, between Marty's mom and uh, Busey's character, mm-hmm. and part of, part of the character journey, the family journey of the film, which is what I know the director wanted to emphasize, was sort of how they sort of reconcile in the face of a larger threat. Yeah, that's all true, and uh, particularly with uh, Jane, mm. the sister character is barely there in the book. Oh, you know, yeah. that's that's way fleshed out. She in... she just shows up to call the brother a booger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, a most upsetting pejorative, <laughs> if I've ever heard one. But um, yeah, they they definitely leaned into that in the movie, and I can appreciate that. I just um, revisiting it uh, again for the first time in many years last night. I was I was struck by that. You know mm-hmm. that there that there's very little attempt made up front in this movie to ingratiate you as an audience member to the uh, to the cast of characters that yeah. That, you're, you're dealing with you yeah know? Um, but I, I think I think part of that reason and if you look at sort of you step back and look at both the book and the film it sort of felt like the film I mean he gave it a full-on different title he called it Silver Bullet it felt like maybe he was viewing the original book as like a rough draft slash outline for something else and this was sort of his second draft like if he could go back and and make it a full-fledged novel with fleshed out characters and a main protagonist he would have called it silver bullet. Um, you know, maybe it didn't quite, you know, stick the landing for a lot of people. Uh, but maybe there's another version to be made. Um, but what I, what the other thing that I I took away from the movie that wasn't in the original book was that the Reverend Reverend Lowe, uh, played by Everett McGill, who looks like a werewolf, even in human form, by the way. Um, uh, there's one line he added that King added to the story 
And it was the notion that the reverend was almost completely aware of what he was doing, yeah. even in yeah. werewolf form. You know, he, he mentions <laughs> that he, he kills the, uh, the, uh, the pregnant woman uh, to save her soul. The notion that because she was getting ready to commit suicide in her in her death scene. Yeah. And uh, the reverend says that he he saved her soul from damnation because, you know, in the church, everyone who commits suicide goes straight to hell. So it added this really strange pathos to the character that I'd never seen in a werewolf movie before, you know, because going back to American Werewolf or the Wolfman, you know, the the guy afflicted with uh, being a werewolf is always out of control you know, and trying to stop it. And this That's felt true. like the first, first time I saw a character who knew exactly what he was doing and was completely okay with it. And that's a big, oh, sorry, that's a big break from the, from the novella or the no novelette mm -hmm. uh, as well, because in the, the, the cycle of the werewolf, Lowe doesn't even know he's the werewolf until he wakes up with his eye blown right. out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm with you. Like, I think that that's actually, su it's such a, a much stronger, um, uh, impulse for the character to have that kind of righteousness behind. Yes, I I didn't ask for this. He has that moment where he says, "This isn't my fault." You know, mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't in, you know make myself a werewolf. You know, he still has that moment, but he's using it. You know what he believes uh, in a righteous way. Even though, like, how are you going to explain away how righteous is it? You know, killing an eleven year old flying a kite. Like they never really touch on that part. You know, um, and, and he does kind of implied that there's a little impulse uh, lost there because he does tell Marty in, on the bridge that I would never willingly hurt a child, uh, you know? And so there is that then insinuation that, that he unwillingly killed, you know, the, the Marty's friend. Right. Um, uh, By the way, that's, that scene on the bridge is a, is a perfect example. Cause that, you know, that scene never existed in the book. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, the, the, the notion that the that the werewolf in his human form is aware of it and he's about to dispose of the one witness like he's covering up for the werewolf's tracks. Yeah. You know, and then the belief that he, he again, that he thinks he's doing in some ways God's work by sort of fitting the herd of this town. Um, that just that's always stuck with me as a kid. Yeah, because yeah, he, he I think he makes the point that he's not taking out the righteous in the town. He's taking out the drunks and right. the, uh, you know, abusers and, you know, and, uh, and the innocence that he is taking, he's some, he's implying that he's taking them uh, to save them. As you said, like the keeping the girl from committing suicide where yeah. he'd rather take that sin onto himself, which is a very, uh, you know, preacher thing to do. I think all of that, I, I, I agree that what King is doing with this screenplay is, Basically, you know, he's he's fleshing out the novelette and Jesus Christ, do I hate that word, <laughs> um, which in itself was supposed to be a calendar to, to begin uh -huh. with. I would if I had to guess, I would say that the movie is King's definitive version of this story. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's he just keeps fleshing it out more and more. So that's that's point one. Point two is I think all the shit with the preacher is a further extrapolation or, or whatever you want to call it of King's ongoing and, and career long disdain for organized religion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I love that, you know, <laughs> um, the, the justifications that go along with it and the, you know, mm -hmm. these, these horrible things that are done in, in the name of, of combating sin, you know, it's also yeah. hypocritical and all that shit. I think, you know, even from an early age, I felt that King was, expressing hostility towards organized religion. And, and I think this is definitely an extension of that. So yeah, I, I think, enjoy I think, that about it. And I think that's, I think it's, that's the reason that, uh, I mean, not just for me personally, but you know, you mentioned earlier that some people do view it as a cult classic and, and Eric, you said, you know, maybe it's because it's, it's been seen so many times on home video and cable over the years. But I think deeper than that, it, it is these ideas, these themes and concepts that uh, help kept this story, whether it's through the book or the film, alive, but also like the, his greater body of work, because even the adaptations, the film adaptations that aren't necessarily up to par with The Shining or Carrie or the other classics, the ideas, the core ideas behind them are pretty great. Mm. You know, the, the, the books, the stories backing them, the themes. And I think this is one of those, you know, it's like Children of the Corn, I don't think is one of the best 
King <laughs> films either. But it's like when you take the film and you go back and read the short story, you know, um, it plays on some of the themes that you're talking about, Scott. You know, this the is yeah, for like I, religious extremism and organized and like people taking the religion too far. I absolutely agree. I I would put Silver Bullet in the exact same box as as Children of the Corn in terms of yeah. being uh, the movie is a much better movie than Children of the Corn is. But in terms of what it's doing and how it's functioning as an expansion of another work mm. and 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 how it's how it's targeting religion and and just in a lot of little ways like that, mm. I think it's playing in the same ballpark. You know, uh, mm -hmm. neither neither of those movies are in the, playing in the same league as, say, uh, The Shining or the first Pet Cemetery. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. but they are like uh, these little movies that are sort of spun out from whatever the uh, the original source material is and and maybe that's maybe that's something to investigate is is the idea that there's like a little subgenre within king stuff that's you know about religion you know uh Carrie probably doesn't qualify but it's close oh it does well oh, well 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 <laughs> here's the thing here's the thing Carrie I think is top shelf I don't think Carrie is in the same league as Children of the Corn or um you know, uh, what fucking thing are we talking about? Silver, Silver bullet. bullet. Like, yeah. I, oh, don't, I see what you're saying. I, I, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it's operating on a different level, but, but yeah. yes, in that sense, you know, it's, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely taking organized religion to task. Well, you know, the mist yeah. is a prime example of that as well. Yes. Oh, yeah. The mist. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. a recurring theme. <laughs> the mist is fucking top shelf King. Though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm really glad we started talking about this stuff. Cause like, I don't even think I've connected those dots in my own head before about King's commentary on organized religion, even though it, we've read all these titles, watched all the films, I've never like connected those themes from the mist to carry to silver bullet. And I don't even think I've read a good essay on about it. About I don't, I, I don't think that I, if, if it exists, I have not seen it, but there is a, a blockbuster fucking interview to be done with Stephen King about religion. You yeah. Yeah. You know, he is a fascinating figure in in that respect. Well, and, and the stand too. I mean, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, there's a great I mean, yeah. There's that great scene in uh, Salem's Lot when the vampire invades the family kitchen, which terrorized me as a kid because it's it it happens in you know an environment you view as being perfectly safe. Yeah. Uh, it's like the family eating dinner with the priest, and the vampire just full on just invades. Yeah. And it's and the test your faith. Yes, yeah. and the priest holding the faith up against yeah. my faith. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a scene that we've we've witnessed in so many different Dracula movies, and it's always supposed to work, and this time it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, in the in the Toby Hooper adaptation, that's James Mason plays that scene for all all it's worth. He's chewing so much scenery in there. Yeah, that's I was, I was <laughs> talking about the the film. Yeah, yeah. face the master. <laughs> <laughs> Your faith against his. Yeah, it gave me nightmares. That and the you know, let me in. While floating outside the window. Of course, yeah. So with Danny yeah. Click. Yeah, fuck that kid. Well, let me ask you guys this question. How do you feel about werewolf shit in general? Like, Mike, I mean, you may, you you know, uh, werewolves were, you know, one of the cornerstones of uh, Trick or Treat. I assume you're a fan. I love them. Um, okay. Okay. Like, how would you rank a werewolf against, say... Vampires, a swamp creature, you know, your your classic, you know, movie monster. Well, he's already put that to the test. And who won in that in that fight? I <laughs> guess trick so. or treat. I guess. Oh, like, right, right. Is that your favorite? Like, is that like um, they're they're definitely up there, I think, because you know, Freud would have a field day with werewolves and vampires. Uh, because to me, like you know, they represent so many different aspects of ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. that's always been a huge appeal is that, you know, there's a very sort of sexual aspect to the vampire myth, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, whereas werewolves always seem to be tapping into our more animalistic, Prime. primal, violent urges, you know. I don't know. I've always been fascinated with them uh, because I also find them very sympathetic. You know, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier is that typically when someone is uh, bitten by a werewolf and transforming every full moon. Uh, they're aware of it, but they're struggling with it. 
It's like, it's almost like someone going through addiction issues. So I just find them just so insanely simple yet complex underneath the surface for those reasons. And they just look cool um, most of the time. You know, the thing, but strangely, it's just, I don't, there haven't been a lot of great werewolf movies. Yeah. No, a, there, there are a lot, there, there are a lot of werewolf movies, not a lot of great ones. Yeah. I can think of like three, three. Yeah. I was going to say like ginger snaps. Oh, right? great one. Like great fucking one. love ginger snaps. The original Wolfman and American werewolf, probably. American werewolf. Like there's no, you wouldn't yeah, put that talking about this. No, in fact, I was telling Eric, and I'll get yelled at this later by people, but uh, as soon as I was done watching Silver Bullet last night, I put on uh, The Howling. And I just, I don't think I like that movie. Um, I think, uh, you know, the where, the, the effects are great. Um, yeah. There's there's no getting around that. But I don't, I just, I just don't think I like the story, and I don't like the way the movie looks. The whole aesthetic of it uh, mm. just doesn't work for me. Um, I recognize the, uh, I recognize its place within werewolf movie canon. I won't yeah. argue with that. And I, you know, again, I respect it, but, um, the howling is just not a fucking movie I'm going to throw on like ever. <laughs> totally you get know? it. Totally get it. I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned ginger snaps though. Yeah. Really oh, glad you mentioned Love that. ginger well, snaps. And I, I'm going to throw in again, this is my, my, uh, grew up with it on a uh, nerd card, but. Like one of my favorite on-screen werewolves is the werewolf in Monster Squad. And now, I love the design on that werewolf. The design, which is meant to look like oh. uh, Stan Winston. Yeah, and totally. It, it once you once you see yeah. that, you can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I just love that him as a character, the way John Grease plays him. You know, because yeah. in his human form, he's doing everything he can to save everybody. Mm -hmm. And yeah. like when he's finally killed, he he transforms back and doesn't have like the jump scare, you know, moment that, right. that Reverend Lowe has in, in Silver Bullet. He has a, a very human, you know, thing where he thanks the person, you know, the kid who shot him yeah. for really, really yeah. curse. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually a super touching, but, you know, moment. I, like I, yeah, that, that moment is exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah. I think that's always been the appeal for me is that you know they represent so much of our sort of own struggles internally whether it be with addiction or tempers or whatever that we all have you know humans are animals mm -hmm. right so as much as we, we're con we're a species constantly trying to domesticate ourselves you know from our sort of animal natures and the werewolves just encapsulate that that perfectly that myth just it, they're so it's so loaded Yet also so simple, you know, to the point where kids can watch it. And I remember there was a book about werewolves. And again, my Catholic school, the more I talk about it, I realize how fucked up it was. <laughs> um, but there was a book in this Catholic school library about werewolves, which included uh, a ritual on how to turn yourself into a werewolf. Word? <laughs> yeah. And I remember, I remember like. Did it work? Like, that's the funny thing is the kids, like the kids, some of the kids in our class would sort of, you would check it out and dare each other to, to, to perform it, <laughs> you know, but if it's in a know, book, it must be true. But the thing is, I was so obsessed with this book that I recently tracked it down off eBay again, oh, just to make sure, make sure I didn't misremember it, but <laughs> it's there. Yeah. Well, so, something that I want to circle back to in the movie uh, that I noticed uh, and in, I may be crazy, but I'm 90% sure King stole the structure of Jaws when he mm. decided to uh, make the feature-length version. And it was something that hit me right on, and I'm pretty sure the director was in on it, too, because the first time, the, right at the beginning of the movie, there's that like town gathering where the right. reverend makes a speech, and the music that the bandstand's playing is the music oh. that they play on the beach in Jaws. Fuck. You know, wow. Right? And, and I'm like, holy shit, like, wow. oh, that, that's an interesting choice, but they... Like structurally, instead of making focusing on Chief Brody as this monster is picking off people in in his small town, you're focusing on this kid. But they still decide to give um, Terry O'Quinn's sheriff character the Chief Brody moment, where he's confronted by the the uh, uh, father in this case instead of the mother of uh, Mrs. It's the Mrs. Kintner scene from Jaws, you know, Fuck. in the bar where he yeah. You know, he goes up and he's just like, you know, you say all this, but it's my boy that's dead. You know, it's a, the only thing he doesn't do is slap, you know, Terry O'Quinn. 
you know, it's yeah. I, I was just struck with like how how much of the structure and character work in the movie was. was kind of By the way, that's that's, that's a really that's a really keen observation. I have to go. No back and watch shit. It again. What kind of usual suspects ending bullshit is this? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, you mentioned this in passing. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about this earlier, you were like, yeah, I think he stole the structure from Jaws. I was like, I'll hear about whatever that is later. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it's, now that I watched it again and now that you're saying that, it's absolutely right. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smart choice. I mean, the way they also kept the creature mostly hidden. Yeah. Um, ironically, probably for the same reasons as Jaws, because they, they, from what I understand from reading uh, some background is that there were a lot of arguments about the wolf, the werewolf's design. Yeah. Uh, being Carlo Rambaldi and the, uh, and the director and uh, the producer. And Rambaldi, it should be noted, is the guy who made E.T. So Well, King, King requested that it be, like, simplified, right? Yeah. That it be, yeah. like, sort of a, you know, which I can kind of respect that. He didn't want to, like, you know... Sexy up the but werewolf. Kind of Just make far. it a fucking like a blunt force instrument is what yeah. I'm imagining. You know him. You went a little too far though. Um, yeah, it's a boring it's design. My, like, I actually really do like the movie, and it's it's held up, especially as an adaptation. To me, I think he he picked really interesting things to focus on, and I think it's actually one of the stronger in terms of straight up adaptations of what the source material was versus what ended up on screen. I think that he he himself gave a lot of depth to it, um, and as much as I you know love it, and I'll, I'll cite a couple of, of uh, reasons why I think that. But like the werewolf design is not the the best thing in the movie. It's it's got really yeah. great eyes that they use a lot. <laughs> the the claws look cool. The werewolf design itself is is pretty lacking, I think. And people have, have said it looks too much like a bear, and and I I can see that. But like to me. It's just more that the head's way too big. Whenever you see the full body shots, it it just looks like a, a man in a wearing a big big mask. Yeah. Um, to me, uh, but one thing that I that I want to point out uh, uh, that I I really loved and took away on my review, uh, my rewatching of it, my uh, revisit, as it were, was uh, a very smart decision that he did to mirror the the relationship that Marty has with his sister Jane with uh, uncle red and his mother. Yeah. Like you get that one really great scene where they're arguing about who's has a better idea on how to deal, you know, with his handicap and how to treat him as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see a little bit in there, the glimpse between, you know, uncle red and, and the mom, you know, as brother and sister, you know, some of that same fire you see, you know, between, uh marty and jane yeah that was something i was really struck by uh on the there's a there's a deluxe version that just hit blu-ray i want to say last year uh i think it was a shout factory yeah yeah scream factory yeah 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 scream factory uh and uh there's a great commentary with the director and he talks about how he wanted to emphasize the the character drama the family drama you know, knowing that the horror and the werewolf, not that it would come easy, but that without the, the base sort of uh, the baseline emotional stuff, it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Um, but the specifically the relationship between Uncle Red and Marty's mom. Yeah. Well, and, and it comes through. And, you know, I'm also I'm I'm unmarried and don't have a family. But, you know, I I really love kids and I'm the cool uncle to my you know, to my uh, uh, friends' kids, Max and Rocco. In fact, I watched, uh, we watched Silver Bullet last night together and they hadn't seen it before. And, uh, uh, you know, so I relate to Uncle Red and I really think that Gary Busey's kind of in that great zone here of still being insane Gary Busey that we know and love, but also not so outside the reservation that you can't relate to him as a as a person. He was improving a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, he had his scripted lines, but, you yeah. know, they kind of let him do a take and take the ball and run with it. And they ended up using most his of that His bald head, movie. jumping Jesus, Palomino is probably from him. I find him terrifying. He tells, <laughs> that, he tells that joke about the donkey or the jackass. And yeah, you're like, yeah. I don't want to be in a room with this motherfucker. <laughs> like, he seems terrifying to me. Anyway, sorry, Gary Busey, if you're listening. But you're I love you, scary... Gary. I wish you were my uncle. Yes. Um, cool. So I think we're... We're kind of towards the end. You want to talk a little bit about how you think uh, 
Silver Bullet is as an adaptation and where it kind of sure. already touched a little bit on where you think it fits in the great Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think it's um, a better than average adaptation yeah. because I think it improves upon the source material. I think, uh, you know, it fleshes it out in, in necessary ways. And in, in that regard, I, I think it's a success. Um, I'm not particularly into werewolf shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super excited about the story this movie is telling. Just as a movie, as a, as a property, I'm, I'm sort of middle of the road on this one. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I, I do not stand for uh, Silver Bullet, to yeah. put it in the, in the uh, terminology that Twitter will understand. But um, it's not bad. It's and I think it's I think it's better than a lot of King adaptations, yeah, and that's cool. that's where I kind of uh, land on it. I think it's you know if we're we're separating King adaptations into let's say four quadrants or you know four tiers, I think this is like second from the top. You know, really good, improves on the source material, but it's not a classic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly not going to be in the uh, the league with Shawshank Redemption or Stand sure. By Me or Misery yeah. right. or something. But it's I rewatching this and watching it after like doing a quick reread of the the source material. I was really struck by how smart of an adaptation this was, and like how we took every single decision that was either kind of a wrong decision in the you know that worked for for a novelette. Uh, but wouldn't work for, you know, a full on uh, story and improved it, uh, you know, and he fleshed out the characters in ways that I thought was really smart. What we were talking about was how Red and Marty's mom, you have a scene where they kind of show the same. They had the same brother sister relationship mm-hmm. as as Marty and Jane. So you can kind of see that right. you know, family dynamic. That's all really smart. And um, and he somehow also makes the mother in that one scene not the one dimensional character that she was in the story and also not the one dimensional character. The father is in both the story and the movie. Mm -hmm. The father just goes, you know, yeah, red, you know, have fun taking care of my, my handicapped kid, you know, a couple of times. (laughs) That's, that's that's the extent of that character. But I I was, I was very impressed by the actual adaptation of it. Like where the final result um, is, you know, I'm kind of with you. It's, it's, uh, it's like, I don't know. It would be a solid like C plus, you know, if you were ranking, you know, the best Stephen That's King about movies. Right. And yeah, the, I agree with you on that. And, and the the worst, you know, yeah. it's, it's a it's a movie I have a lot of fondness and nostalgia for, um, and I'm trying to factor that in too, and try to look at it as, as objectively as I can. But I think Mike was, you know, kind of hit the nail on the head when he was saying this is the reason why I think I like this so much is that this is King getting his second draft, mm-hmm. you know. Of of telling the story and yeah, I, I I completely agree with you guys, and I feel like we're sort of witnessing a Stephen King title that is still unfinished. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense to you, like the, you know, the first the book was like we said, it's a novella. It's it you it was it's a calendar. Long, excuse me. Yeah, excuse no, me. no, uh, I, I'll, I'll go with novella. Uh, but Novelette um, sounds like something someone on Twitter's. They wrote a. Fu- they're they're saying they wrote a fucking book and it's a pamphlet and they're selling <laughs> it on Patreon for eight dollars and it's a it's a novelette. It's four pages long. Right? Yeah. Fuck you. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Mike. And no, that's no, all good. It'll, it'll get option for you know six figures. That yeah. Novelette. But no. So the you know the, the original book was initially planned as a calendar and then it became a novella, but it doesn't have. A clear through line like you said the main character doesn't get introduced until two-thirds into the book and then he did the next draft which was silver bullet gave it a new title changed the care a lot of the characters names by the way mm-hmm. um and Uncle introduced uh, yeah entered inter- introduced an actual protagonist who we track um but you know like we've talked about it's it has its flaws the concept is really interesting but it has its flaws. So unlike a lot of his other books and adaptations, which sort of achieve perfection, I would say Carrie, The Shining, The Mist sort of fall into that category. Um, this one hasn't sort of had a definitive edition yet. I have two questions for that. One, do you think you could make this movie today without it seeming ridiculous? And what I'm picturing here is a trailer 
where there's a kid in a wheelchair going up a highway at like 60 miles an hour <laughs> and not have people laugh at that. Secondly, would would you be interested in in taking the the final edition of Silver Bullet if it's not done yet? If you don't think the definitive definitive edition of this has been tackled? Like if it if it got thrown your way, would you do a a, a new Silver Bullet movie? Uh, I'd probably go back to the original title. Mm-hmm. Right on. Uh, I would turn his rocket-powered wheelchair into <laughs> awesome, it would be an awesome hovercraft mech suit that transforms. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, but that, I think that's an element that you could lose. You know, it wasn't even in the original story. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I again, I think the core concept is good enough that you could do it as a small, tight thriller. Yeah, well, um, I, I'd, I'd say your way in is to do the one thing that they couldn't figure out how to do in the movie was actually have it take place over that year. They yeah. they only put it's only a, a couple of months in the movie, and they kind of have to bend over backwards to explain how he's not so wolfy, you know, when, yeah. when the moon's only half full, you know, to kind of explain how all these attacks are happening. But like yeah, to me, that's, think- that's your way in where you you make it the seasonal, you know. The, the the seasonal structure you know yeah. he, he, maybe you meld the calendar year structure where it's happening every month over a year with you know with the the jaws ripoff structure because that seems well, to be that what... that and i think if you really focus on marty and reverend low and mm-hmm. reverend low being a character again what we talked about where he's aware of what he's doing and yeah. he kind of views it as his mission in a weird way to thin the herd of this town. I think that's all really fascinating stuff, especially in the times that we live in now, mm-hmm. you know, where religious extremism is becoming more and more dangerous. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think, I think it could be done. You know, what would be interesting is a version of this that's told entirely from the reverend's point of view, that's, you know, yeah. <clears throat> you know, something that's somewhere in between silver bullet and first reformed, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and let's see him struggle with that and eventually get, you know, toppled by these, you know, the kids and their uncle. But, Damn meddling you know, kids. I would I would if they announced a new Silver Bullet slash Cycle of the Werewolf movie and it was just a straight up adaptation, I'd be like, eh, all right. But if they were like, look, we're doing this, but we're telling it from this particular angle, that would excite me. Because then you can really do some wild shit with that. Or it's it's a two-hander. You know, you really flesh out the Reverend and you flesh out Marty. Sure. I know. And and, and, and you fix the werewolf design. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I don't think I don't think I care about the kid as much as the Reverend. Um, Mm. Or I'm not I'm just not as interested. I I would I think there's more uh, there's richer thematic material to explore through the Reverend than, you know, the kid. Um, But that's fair. You know, that's just me. Yeah, but if it's the sole focus, then, you know, you're going to kind of lose the flavor of the town. You're going to lose, you know. you, you Make that the story. Make that the story. It's about a reverend trying to save the town. You know, Andy's a werewolf. And, you know, in the meantime, he's getting, you know, you'll get what? a spot blown up by these fucking, you know, like a middle schooler. Yeah. You know, like that would, that's interesting to me. Like, he, I like that angle. He's a superhero werewolf, so he's trying to save the town. There we go. Yeah, and we're gonna do episodes. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna blow your minds right now. We're gonna make the This is a series episodes, six minutes long. Guess where it's going? Quibby. Quibby. That's right. This is a Quibby series. Yes. One six minute episode. They're gonna every month of the year. Wait till people find out about this vertical horizontal (laughs) uh, camera change thing. They're gonna be uh, so excited. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Quibby. Fuck off. <laughs> Setting aside Cycle of the Werewolf, Mike, if you could take on any King adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, no budgetary restrictions, you can do whatever you want. May- wave a magic wand. What would it be? It's already been taken, from what I understand. Uh, but I love it right up next to Carrie because I think it's a great companion piece, and that's Firestarter. Mm. Really? That's an interesting yes. choice. Because I, I'm obsessed with psychic phenomena as just a as a supernatural uh, question. Um, and I just find this, the premise of that really captivating, you know, of a little girl who can't control her own abilities and just the world of the shop. Uh, Cause he, he, I was so obsessed with that book in the seventh grade that I had to do a science fair experiment. 
And inspired by that and Carrie, I tested all my classmates for psychic ability. <laughs> Again, I was a very convincing child. And like initially my teachers were like, okay, psychic abilities are science fiction, not science. And I just plunked down all the books on parapsychology uh, that I could on her desk and said, all right, go for it. And I tested all my classmates just based on sort of a lot of the background fodder in Firestarter about the shop and the CIA experiments and how the government you know, took psychic abilities very seriously. Um, and everybody failed all the tests. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, except one girl. <laughs> Swear to God, one girl tested so high that I tested her again, and she excelled both times. Was, was that girl Drew Barrymore? <laughs> uh, no, it was not Drew Barrymore. Her name, I, I, I won't give away her last name because I don't want people knocked on her door. Uh, but Kelly... She she's out there, and then uh, she ended up working in the White House. Uh, what? Tw- I swear to God! I swear Aunt to God! I, Kelly Ann Conway. I, no, <laughs> no, not not this administration. She worked for uh, one of the Bush administrations. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. So again, like I'm I, I I'm obsessed with King because he mixes. It's a perfect mix of reality and fiction. Um, and Firestarter is a great example of that. Uh, cool, man. Well, thank you so much yeah. for, for taking the time. This has been a, a lot of fun. Yes, thank yeah. you. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up this episode of The King Cast. We've had a few listeners tell us that they would very much like to know the next title we're covering in advance. And I think that sounds like a swell idea. We're still going to keep the guests a secret until the show's about ready to launch. But I do like the idea that you guys can follow along with us. So I can tell you for the next episode, we will be following the man in black into the desert. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be covering the Dark Tower, but not quite in the way that you might expect. Stay tuned for that. It's going to be a special one, I promise. 